Welcome to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City. And I'm going into focus now. Brooklyn, New York, Carroll Gardens to a block has been made famous by a record label, a record label owner who has four to five decades under his belt. Like all of us, he started as a kid. He's a disco fanatic, went through the whole disco era, went into the freestyle era, went into all the house music era and so forth. Today he runs a fabulous radio station. It's called the Johnny D Experience. He's one of the best A&R guys I remember ever meet, meeting in our lives. He'll tell you where you stand and how tall you are with a smile, but he'll tell you the truth. He'll tell you how short you are too when he needs to. So we got A&R, we got a DJ master mixer. It was on WKTU, used to do the Master Mix Showcases every week, Saturday night dance party, week after week, year after year, played great music. One song I always remember him playing all the time, no matter what set it was, was Rolling Down a Mountainside. Yeah, it was a signature song for him. Knew that every needs Larry, he knows. Rolling Down, Man in Green, everybody, go learn that record. Great song. So without further ado, let's bring up Henry Street's Kid Wizard of Carroll Gardens, motto in the Cobble Hill area of Brooklyn, New York, Johnny D. DeMario. Good afternoon, everybody. Hello, thanks, Happy Lane. Thanksgiving. That was a beautiful, beautiful introduction. He said he wants the best. I can't. Yeah, we got to make it special today. You know, Thanksgiving Eve and everything. It's got to be hot. It's got to feel good. Let me make the volume a little louder so everybody can hear you on Instagram. We're on Instagram Live, everybody, too, and Facebook. Share away. So, Johnny, I'm not going to waste no time because there's a lot to cover. Yes. I've given a lot to it already, but I want you to take over because this is not Lenny's show. This is Johnny D's show today. Okay. Johnny, here's the deal. First question out of the box, right away. Music is an important part of your life. Yes. Okay. When does music truly, or when do you find music? Yeah, early on. I mean, my, my sister's six years older than me, so she was a very big influence um, between the disco stuff, um, pop stuff, Chicago, you know, Howell Melvin, she was into a lot of stuff and she turned me on to things and there was radio in New York at the time, ABC, you know, which was an AM thing. And then when the FM thing kicked in between uh, Frankie Crocker on BLS, Disco 92, and then 99X, which converted to 98.7 Kiss, those three stations I was like locked into. I was just, I was constantly in radio making playlists and writing down the countdowns and stuff. I was, you know, obsessed with obsessed with radio. So then here we go. So basically, like all of us, radio changed your life, basically. Absolutely. And that's what I'm trying to do now with the experience, which we'll get into down the road. But um, it's my station is basically something I feel that radio was lacking across the board. And what I do with my station is, I bring back the memories and that feeling of what it was like 
to have that shock value and the oh wow and haven't heard that record and wow i can't believe he did that kind of frankie crocker-esque kind of a situation frankie in his prime well i'm gonna say this i'm gonna jump forward a little bit anybody's ever been to the librarian's home this man's home here it's incredible the the record collection is so pristine and is so well maintained and has everything yeah, it's a very tight. It's collection. a jeweler. It's a it, if for, for a record for for a person that appreciated someone that really went out of their way to collect as a record collector. Crazy collection. Yeah, very. I right. always say I always say it's fat free. There's not a lot of promo junk in there. It's pretty much every record has a story. It's a clean collection. So very clean. So your sister gives you the you know between ABC Radio course and. Um, and just, and just at that time, you know, just in the world, in the early 70s, you could buy records everywhere. If you went to the locksmith up the corner, he'd have a cubby with 25 records and, and a little list of the top 25, top 50, top 100. So if you were at uh, a clothing store, wherever you went, records were everywhere. So I was constantly buying records. It was just, I, I really, um, I preferred them over toys all the time. I just, it was, it was... Um, an unbelievable thing. You could constantly play it over and over again, you know, and um, I really didn't get sick of records a lot. I just, it was, you know, they all, be, I feel like the, the records became a part of me. So as I got older, it wasn't like, oh, I played that record so much, I'm over it. That became a part of me. I just kept adding to it. I do it to this day. I mean, I'm still being turned on to music. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about music where you can constantly be turned, you could be at a restaurant. And somebody's playing some crazy channel and you hear some Brazilian record that turns you on. So I love that about music. When is this? Um, so as in, in transitional stage, at that time, you're learning about the music. But when does it begin for you to or did you see someone DJing? Um, when did yeah. that, when yeah, that start? You know, 19, like 78, 79, there was a place called Roller Palace in Brooklyn, roller skating rink in. When I first walked in, it, something just hit me, and I was like, "Wow, this like I, you know, you know, you have those out of body moments where you're just like, I know something crazy just happened." And I remember the guy had space around Sheila B and Devotion, and I just walked in and this incredible sound system. These people were skating, and I was never a great skater. I wish I was better, but just to watch the people and this sound system, and after we left that place, there was a, a um a team club next to it called Patches. And we walked into that place as another guy and he's playing just a touch of love. And I'm just, and and, I, and that was where I really looked where the DJ booth was. And that was when the whole DJ light went off. I was like, wow, who's this guy playing music and roller pals. I couldn't tell where the DJ was. So I wasn't really thinking overly about where music was coming from, but with the, with the Patches club, I saw the booth, saw the guy with the records and that was just, okay, that was the little spark. So then we fast forward a little. A friend of mine who was my best friend at the time decided that he wanted to meet girls. So he was going to do it through DJing. I always had girls. I never had a problem with that. So I just, he bought one turntable. My friend around the corner bought the other turntable. They had a mixer. They'd get together and they'd play records. The guy around the corner, Frank, knew what he was doing. But the other guy who really got me into it had no idea. And I'm like, I'm telling him, yo, there's pitch over here. Like, there, there's an art to this. And he just never got it. So I was very into, okay, okay, you got to 
mixed records. They have to be on beat. There has to be that element of surprise. So I've come from that end of it where the DJ, I mean, there are a lot of debates say about, oh, you know, David Mancuso played one record after the other. That's beautiful. You know, I don't do drugs. I wasn't there for that. Um, that's a jukebox to me. God bless them. You know, people that love that era, that's a great, that's just not me. For that, somebody's going to just play one record after the other. Come to my house. I have the best records ever. You want to pull records out of my wall and play them? You know, my son was five. He could do that. As far as the sound system being, oh my God, I think you got to be on incredible drugs to truly appreciate these sound systems that people talk about. So I don't really do drugs and um, I'm more concerned with the music than hearing this. You know, I, I, I just, I've never been in a club. I mean, I've been to Studio 54. I've been to clubs where the sound system was great, but I've never heard separation like I'm in a Quincy Jones section session. <laughs> and I feel like a lot of these stories that are, you know, from the seventies to today get a little bit um liquefied. But that's another story. Anyway, the music part, the DJing, the technicality part to me was very important. And as a DJ starting in 1979, uh looking at the credits of the records, all, all of this was incredibly intriguing to me. I, I loved it all. Where was it mastered? Where I just look into the run out groove. I was just interested in every part of the record. It was all interesting to me. So it was it was important and it was um I, I didn't I didn't take it like I don't take it lightly today. And I didn't take it lightly then. It was it's it's something that I feel that we as a community, there should be some kind of a placement test before somebody can go buy two turntables in a mixer. I think there should be I just think that it shouldn't be as easy as it is for somebody to just say, Hey, I'm a DJ. You know, but um it's just, you know, that is that's a that's a whole other thing. Well let's ex- let's let's explore this for a second, okay? Back in the day. You know, when we all started, we needed to learn how to blend properly and do transitions. As I remember, T.D. Kiso yelled at me and says, no, it wasn't mixing. It was transitions. Got it. Okay. Um, What did it take for you to master that art at being a young kid? Because, you know, we were all listening to the radio. We all heard the master mixes. Yeah. I think the most important part of DJing is you have to know your music. And I know every nook and cranny of the records that I love and play and every hi-hat, every tempo change, every different part. And I think that's your most important part. Anybody can sit in front of a computer and say, at three minutes, line up this 123 beat per minute record with this 123 beat per minute record, hit the start stuff. But then you still, you still have to execute. So, you know, this sync button that people talk about, it's still not that easy because you still have to come out of it. There has to be a fade. Uh, there are still bars involved. This one's going to stop talking. This one's going to start talking. You still have, there's an art there. And the people that do it well, I take my hat off to, they could be the biggest assholes on the planet. If they show me that talent, I love them. End of story. That's just the thing. You win me what your talent with this. And I really don't think it's rocket science. I don't think I'm curing cancer, but I think that there, there are far too few that you can go to and say, wow, listen to this guy. And we have big name guys on the radio. You have guys making $70 million a year on a stage in front of a computer pumping their fist. I, you know, I don't, I mean, God bless. I, I don't get that at all. Being a DJ over 41 years, so you run into relatives. Hey, John, you know, I just read in Forbes magazine that, you know, this guy Axel made, you know, $30 million last year. 
how do you how do you defend yourself? You're DJing two times, uh, two, you know, twenty years more than this guy. You know way more. How do you defend yourself? It's one of the it's one of the craziest things. It's like you you build houses and you you're a guy that gets your hands dirty. You put the foundation in and you do the plumbing, the electric. You do all these things. The window. You put the best things possible. And some guy across street pulls up on a truck with, with a prefab house. That's basically the difference of what we're talking about. You know, it's like it's. But does it make it? But does it make it right? Okay. Well, well, listen. Well, I'm going to tell you what the thing is. I think the public as a whole is when it comes to music. I'll say it's very forgiving, and they don't they don't necessarily care about the stuff that I care about. <laughs> so, as far as a guy being technically correct. Wow, that DJ blew my mind. I think that today, I mean, listen, I have people that follow me and appreciate and respect me, and I love that. I think it's a great thing. But for the most part, if you play a record somebody wants to hear, that's what they care about. If you, know, I say this all the time. If you're a photographer and you take blurry pictures, you're probably not going to get booked for the next wedding or something. But if you're a DJ and you're absolutely horrible, but you play I Will Survive or whatever the hell they want to hear at that moment. That's all they remember. They don't remember the train crash to get to I Will Survive. They just remember that you played I Will Survive. Only people that are really conditioned to people that are in like my world or your world or in a world of like, hey, this is how a DJ is supposed to be, whether it's house, disco, hip hop, whatever it is. There are DJs that are tight that can really do it and pull it off. So when you're around that, you can hear a bad DJ. But for the most part, I don't, I don't think the public cares. And I don't think when you look at these guys that are making $50 million a year, that's aside from the fact that it's all pre-programmed and it's tracky and there aren't many vocals or whatever, you got these kids that are on all kinds of drugs to begin with. So it's how much are they even, you know, when they leave there, can they go buy records? Oh, yeah, I want that record that goes don't, don't, don't. Like how, you know, <laughs> that's part of the demise of our scene which I guess we can get into at some other point down the road. But well, that's why you see the cameras. They, they recruit, and that's nothing that, that drives me crazy. We'll get into that in a moment. But you see thousands and thousands of people. You have nobody in the moment. People are not in the moment. It's thank God. Well, you were going out dancing. You remember. What was it like back then? So that's oh, yeah, no, listen, I say it all the time. I was, I'd be on the bridge at Studio 54 having a time in my life. I thank God I'm not going through this today. I thank God that we had what we had, you know, and things. I mean, listen, would I love to have footage of me at all my clubs in the 80s? Absolutely. But I wouldn't trade that time of what I had for, to say, okay, today I'm going to be doing it and, you know, try to catch up. I'm glad I was there for some of the golden age. You know, that's pretty much it. I wouldn't trade. That's good. And I said the same because it wouldn't be who we are today if we didn't have that around yes. us. And we got to catch all the first generation guys. Yeah. You know that. We caught a lot of them now. Not to say they were really good. Yeah. But we did well, catch them. Well, listen, I mean, it's I, I think that another great part was that we were there for that part of that music. So when you look at the disco, you know, the disco era, you know, being in New York in the 70s, I mean, you know, you know what's better than that you know it was just you know there was so much stuff around you and then let me show this clubs. picture everybody let me show this picture so don't get nervous this is what he's talking about the era look at the talent around him 
Look at that. Johnny Carson and Frankie Crocker. That's, a, that's, that's a one of my radio talent. promos. Like so that's a kind of talent. Show, Frankie Crocker and Stereo. That's it. And how Three many times. records? And how many records did Frankie? I mean, Christ, how many records did Frankie Crocker break? Frankie your- Crocker. Well, you know, you know, Frankie Crocker. The, the thing about Frankie Crocker was, um, you know, he he wasn't programmed, so he was the programmer. He was at a black-owned station, one of the few that you know, up until a couple of years ago when Emma's took them over, they were like the last ones, um, in the major market. But the thing about Frankie that was incredible was. He truly lived it. You know, I remember, you know, he'd talk about the garage or, you know, he'd have an acetate at this time, baby, the same one that I, I actually had that acetate, but it was the acetate that was given to Larry on a Saturday and Frankie had on a Monday afternoon. I actually have that acetate. But the crazy thing about Larry, I remember, I mean, about Frankie would be, um, he'd play Billy Jean and the record would end. And he picked up the needle and put it on again. And as simple as that sounds, and people can say, oh, what's the big deal? It was fucking iconic. It wasn't like he hit the back arrow. He picked the needle up and put it down again. And he said, that's just too good to hear once. You know, little things like that. You know, this is 40 years later. I remember like it was yesterday. And this is what this guy did and his sign off and just his his personality, everything about it was just so great. And you love the arrogance. Like you wanted it. You know, but then you went to KTU and you had those guys, which I loved all of them. G. Keith Alexander, Joe Causey, Roscoe, Paco. Those guys, to me, they were speaking to me. You know, I was, you know, a person loving disco and and I really was, um, I tune in and it was, you know, you'd hear when Jelly Bean was on, you'd hear Jelly Bean. And I was like, oh my God, like, who's this Jelly Bean guy? And like, how incredible, how lucky is he? that this station is doing that for him. And then people in my neighbor walking around with Jelly Bean shirts, you know, Jelly Bean's biggest thing really came from Brooklyn and he's not even from Brooklyn, but the Brooklyn Cougines, they made Jelly Bean who he is. Well, you let's, know, let's clarify him. Hang on, everybody. <laughs> in the fun house, New York City, okay? You had factions of different bridge and tunnel crowds. You had yes. the Bronx crowd. You had the Bensonhurst crowd, Brooklyn Bay Ridge crowd. You had OZ, Ozone Park crowd. Okay. And they'd have their shirts from the neighborhoods they came. They would stick to each other and they would battle. Yeah. And they would scream. So that's what he's talking about. Brooklyn loved them. So did Ozone Park love Jelly Bean. Yeah. It was their club. It was an Italian, yeah. Spanish thing. They loved it. And... I, I I just I always felt that he was so blessed to have that because you know that wasn't that wasn't like you know the DJ thing now it's the superstardom and the guys in the booth dancing all over the place acting crazy that wasn't what it was I was going to Studio Fifty Four Leroy Washington nobody knew who he was if you would have been outside the club and you asked the five thousand people at five o'clock in the morning. I'll give you $10. Who's the DJ just now? Not a person in the place knew who he was. His name on the flyer was smaller than Made in Canada. Nobody even knew his name. You know, I I was, I loved Leroy, whatever. I thought he had the hardest job in the world. But hey, Tell me how great of a DJ was he? Le- listen, Leroy to me, you know, a lot of people, you know, talk about different guys in New York. To me, Leroy, I mean, Studio 54 just was a life changer for me. And I wasn't, 
Steve Rebell 77. I'm not going to lie like an Andy Cohen and the rest of these guys that were nine talking that they were in there. And quite honestly, I wouldn't have wanted to have been, been there when Liza Minnelli walks in because that would have been the end of my night. I would have been watching her all night. This way, I was going there just for the music. I was delighted that the whole the dropping of the flag when he plays Lady America, playing videos, the bridge that came out, the cocaine moon with the spoon, the whole thing. That was it. And I would sit there and watch him play and be on the dance floor. And every minute of it was just an unbelievable memory. And the fact that he had the hardest gig, and I say that because, listen, you give me a black and a Puerto Rican crowd, that's a dream. I'll play for black and Puerto Rican people 24 7, 365, because they're educated, they know it, they feel the music. White people, very hard. Listen, we have white people that know the music, but overall, when you're at Studio 54, you have 5,000 white people there. They don't, you know, they're not interested in you breaking a record. So he's got a sandwich and make things work and work between playing Van Halen Jump or Caribbean Queen, and then dropping Spank. And he was just doing stuff that was so... And I loved it because I play that way. I don't play sets. I'm like, ooh, I'm going to do a hip-hop. I play whatever I'm going to play. I make it work. I also believe in turning people onto music. That's one of, I think, my most important part of me being on this planet is just to turn people onto music. I've made tapes for years. That's been a big thing. Of course, I could sit there and play IOU and Situation and Planet Rock and all the hits. But I never did that. I always sandwiched in uh, Patty Austin. It's going to be special. I always try to let people know about records they're never going to know. That was always my thing. And um, I feel that the DJ culture is missing that for the simple fact that back in the day, it was one DJ who would spin from 10 to 6. If you had to take a piss, you had to put a long record on and run. Now, you look at these flyers, and it looks like a newspaper. Got 75 guys spinning. So now, how, let's just say you have five guys spinning. How are you going to break new music? Okay, it's Lenny Fontana, Johnny D, Nikki P, Tommy Muscle. Okay, five of us are going to be at the gig. What are we going to do? We all want to get booked for the next gig. So we're going to play hits. We're going to play heat. We're going to be basically playing peak whenever we're on. That's not fair to the crowd. It's not fair to anything. And you're not breaking new music because you want to get booked the next week. If I go to him and say, you know what, guys, I'm going to open up. I'm going to set the table, which personally I would prefer. I'll stay at 113 all night. But I'm not going to be the highlight. Lenny Fontana comes on 2 o'clock playing peak. That's what they're going to look at. So I think that the one DJ taking you on a journey, that whole art is gone, and that's a shame. I'd much <laughs> rather hear one guy, two the most. You're right. And I don't like more. But they don't have that anymore. They, they, and, they, well, and, and that's why you don't see me at a lot of these places, because I'm not very interested in hearing a bunch of guys. I want, if I'm going to see Lonnie Fontana, I want you to take me from 10 to 4. Take me on that journey. I want to see where you're going to take me. I want that ride. I don't want you to come in with your 10 records. Yeah, yeah right. Your eight, your eight big records out of 10, and you're yeah. in and out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. So, so who is the most... For you, who would be your mentor for you? Um, who, who would be the mentor guy that you say, you know, for like, for example, for me, I always talk about three, four guys. I always talk about T. Scott Shep. Yes. Harry Levan and Tony Humphreys, you know, were really a big, big thing for me. Yes. For who, me, I'm, I mean, listen, radio-wise, hands down, you know, Shep Pettibone, Latin Rascals, Dynamic Duo. Between the, you put those three elements, 
you know, you know, I sing, I'm like a walking medley. So the Shep thing, the edits and stuff, uh, Latin Rascals, Tony and Albert were just, I mean, I, I still don't think we caught up to what they were thinking. Those guys are still on another planet. Dynamic duo, Musto's like my brother now, and I got to know him years later. And um, the talent, the different execution, the edits, the layering, the incorporating some import you didn't know, whatever, loved it all. That molded me from the radio standpoint. Club-wise, Danny Cole, a guy I met in 1981, um, a friend of mine was dating his sister, and he, um, they invited me to a block party in my neighborhood. There's my man, Danny. Great shop, Plaza Suite. And I wish I had that hair back. And um, and I, I started, I went to the club when I'm in 82. I DJed his sister, Sweet 16. At the end of it, he said, listen, when you come to the club, I said, yeah, you know, come pick me up. I was 14 years old at the time. Picked me up, went to the record pool. We had lunch, whatever. We wound up at the club at 9.30. We used to have a ritual where we'd have a Bloody Marys from 9.30 to 10.00. And nobody could outdrink Danny. Danny was just, you know, whatever. So then 10 o'clock would kick in. He'd be doing his Johnny Black all night. And I was doing the light show, which was, you know, I was a talented guy. There were maybe two or three switches. One controlled the disco ball. One had some kind of a <laughs> uh, glorified uh, strobe. And there might have been one other thing. And I was just, you know, hitting my switches. And I was so happy to be there. You know, the booth was the size of a shoebox. And it was incredible. And a couple of months in, he looked at me at 5 to 12, and the dance floor got packed. And he said, all right, I'll be back. And I wasn't really following what the hell he was doing. And he basically was telling me, go ahead. Here's your chance. Do it. And I killed the place till 2.30. Came back in. I walked back over to my light thing. I went back to my three switches, or maybe it was two. And he was like, yo, we had a great thing. And then we played together. After that, if I wasn't there, I was at Studio 54. Uh, I was there also on Friday nights with Danny. And uh, we just had a great time. We, we had, you know, he was a lot older than me. He turned me on to stuff. But I was in Mania three times a week, so I was turning him on to stuff. So it was a great thing musically. For the most part, we really came together. And, you know, that lasted four years. I mean, that went from 82 to 86. And, um... I always give him a lot of love for that. You know, he I was a kid and he saw that I knew what I was doing. And he put me on and it was great, man. It was, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't trade that time for anything. Nobody understands that unless you live that. Yeah. How how that moment of, hey, I, you know what, take over. Yeah. Incredible. My my heart was being, it probably took me 20 minutes for my heart just to get to a regular pace. And then I was like, all right, I'm doing it. You know, it's like the, the, the place is good. People are into it, you know. And he he just, I don't even know where he went, but he was, you no. Know, I would look around, I couldn't even see him. So he was in a corner somewhere. And uh, unfortunately, Danny passed a couple of years ago, but Danny was a great guy. And the last couple of years he was alive, we reconnected, which was great. And, um, you know, that was a great thing for him. And, you know, him putting me on, I, I always felt that I was a guy to put people on. I was never an insecure guy or, I mean, I'm an, I'm an overly sensitive guy, but I'm not an insecure guy. So I have no problem putting people on and, hey, Lenny, this is so-and-so. And if you guys become the next gambler, huff, God bless. Like, I'm not bothered. You know what I mean? Uh, this industry doesn't exist like that. Wait, wait. We don't have a problem amongst us doing that. Yeah. We never had a problem amongst us. Yeah. The guys are friend. You know that. 
Yes. It's the other guys that had a problem with us getting in because they were afraid that we were going to take their slots. Yes. Well, I mean, listen to me. There's there's always going to be the insecurity. And understandably, I mean, listen, I remember being in clubs for years and club owners would say, "Ah, I'm giving you all this money. I could bring my nephew in here, give him and his friends drinks, and they'll spin for free. And the truth of the matter is, that's really the mentality. They didn't give a shit. They rarely cared about the DJ and what we were doing. They looked at it like we were just there to somehow get people to the bar and get people to pay. Like, you very rarely had a club owner or club owners that cared about the actual club and everything. The guy Eugene from Jersey and Trona is one of the few, like, club guys who owned Temptations and Chicago's, all these clubs that cared about the club and the DJ and the booth and, like, he actually really cared about all that stuff. And you just, you do all these other things as the DJ. You were always kind of like, you know, whatever. Always felt that you were replaceable. You never felt like you had that security. You know it's, what? You We can get the, the, the guy, who, the bar back to do your job. The bar guy could play your records. And, and, and listen. And the well, you know what? Record, Why don't you bring him up here? Yeah. But, 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 but you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, like I said at the beginning of this conversation, would the dance floor care? The guy plays the records they want to hear? I mean, they probably wouldn't care. You know, it's it's a very, it's a, you know, listen, Louis Vega to me, you know, flawless DJ. Now, if you're booking Louis because he's flawless, okay, as a DJ, I love that. If you're booking Louis just because he has a reputation, you don't really know Louis. Like, there were a lot of DJs with a name just as big as Louis, but Louis can execute. You know what I'm saying? So, I like people saying, I'm going to book Louis because Louis can actually spin, not because Louis's Louis. And I think that there were too many big names that can't um, deliver. Well, the, well, because the generation of today has made it where it's a producer driven business. So, if you're yes. just creating a hit record, the hit record is the the um, the driving force, or should say, the lights that bring everybody. But yeah, but, but 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 even that, you know what? Uh, you know, could you say in the last fifteen years, any of us? I'm going to say us and include all of us. Who's had a hit in the last fifteen years? I'm talking about a substantial hit. I'm not talking about you know number one record. On You're talking like a Robin S, a CC Peniston, a Buckethead. Well, well, I say I say a Kings of Tomorrow, which is the last record. I look at in the house scene that I signed that I think I don't know of a record bigger than that in the last 20, 15 years from any of us. You know, have there been some poppy records from um, T.S.? Yeah, I, but I'm talking about on a club underground level. Talking where it's got an R&B-based dance record. Yeah, I mean, what, what, and not only that, from us. And when I say us, I'm no, I know enough from all from Marshall Jefferson, all the our, house people, our house people. I'm not talking about you know somebody. I just look at look at what we had and what we used to put out, the records that were coming out by all of our peers. They were just wow, 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 wow. Can wow. you they define kind of went away. Johnny D? Can you define when you say? hit what do you mean please search for part two of this podcast on the platform you're watching or listening to and please do not forget to follow us